we had to we had to focus on young people if we were going to develop early intervention systems of care. We, we couldn't wait. We couldn't have an adult-focused system. That's that's dealing with more chronic or prevalent mental illness. An incidence-based approach, focusing on the <clears throat> the first emerging signs of mental ill health. That's where the focus had to be, and that meant you had to create systems of care and cultures of care that appeal to and engage young people. And we needed young people's help to do that because, you know, we had to help them, they had to help us create the right culture that a young person would feel comfortable in and, and would be able to benefit from, so. Hello and welcome to our sixth SciPod episode, a super, super special one with honestly such an exciting and genuinely inspiring special guest who we're going to be chatting to about youth mental health, which is a very um, topical area and there's a lot to unpack, so we're super excited to get into it. I'd like to begin by acknowledging and paying our respects to the traditional owners of the land we stand on, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. A special thanks goes out to the lead sponsor of our podcast, PIF, the Psychiatry Interest Forum, who have helped us out. SISM has received Australian government funding administered by the Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists under the Specialist Training Program. They've got some amazing resources, as we flagged before, so please feel feel free to go check out their website. Joining me for this interview is Uni, who has helped us out with some previous episodes as well. So she'll be here um, today as well. And before we go any further, like last time, I'd just like to preface that in this episode, there will again be discussions of mental health. The description of this episode will have some more details and we really encourage you to please reach out to support if you feel that you need it and to only listen in if you feel comfortable and able to do so. So today, it's time to reveal our special guest. And this speaker has been mentioned in some past episodes as a mentor and inspiration for some of our other guest speakers. So we're very, very keen for this. We're joined by Professor Pat McGorry. Now, it could literally take me an entire podcast to give you all of his bio. So this time, I'm just going to list off some of his incredible achievements in a very long and remarkable career. So Professor Patrick McGorry is a professor of youth mental health at the University of Melbourne. He's the executive director of Origin, which is an organization that is leading a revolution in youth mental health through research, advocacy, and education. Professor McGorry led the advocacy and which resulted in the establishment of the National Youth Mental Health Foundation by the Australian government in 2005, which in 2006 became Headspace. He chaired the Expert, Expert Advisory Committee of the Royal Commission into Victoria's mental health system. In 2010, He was selected as Australian of the Year and became an officer of the Order of Australia. He has published over 1,000 publications with over 51,000 citations and a H index of 119. And I could go on and on, but I will wrap this up by saying that Professor McGorry is known worldwide for his development and scaling up of early intervention and youth mental health services. His vision, dedication, and passion is truly inspiring as in And I think his accomplishments are a testament to what can be achieved when you're willing to invest your time in things that you care about and work with others to achieve your mission. And what's more than that is he demonstrates genuine care and authenticity that inspires those around him, which is very, very powerful. It was an absolute honor to have the opportunity to speak with him. So I really, really hope you you enjoy this conversation and have something that you can take away from it.
Well, thanks, Sartek. The pleasure is all mine. Thanks, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you about this great subject. Well, I, I was a med student back in the 1970s when um, I suppose there was a lot of, um, <clears throat> I don't know, um, altruism among students about changing the world and, and, uh, um, and uh, I, even as a student, I noticed that <clears throat> um, people with mental illnesses were getting a pretty raw deal in, in the hospital system at that time, that they had the old mental hospitals and they also had general hospital psych units, but generally speaking, it was, it was a very much a poor cousin sort of situation. And um, <clears throat> so I thought also from a human rights perspective, it wasn't right, uh, the way the, the, the patients were being treated. And um, so I explored ways that things could be done differently. But and I was very disillusioned with the idea of actually working in psychiatry at that time, because it was pretty grim in, in, in perhaps in many ways. And so I, I, I spent about four years doing general medicine training first, and, and I, I worked in for example, in diabetes for quite a while. And <clears throat> I did physician training uh, up to a certain point too. But then um, I, 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 I was working in Newcastle, New South Wales, and the new medical school was set up. And there was a very inspirational professor of psychiatry, um, Beverly Raphael, who only died a year or two ago, actually. And she, was, she had been a teacher of mine at, at Sydney University and, and in psychiatry. And, and she set up this new... <clears throat> um, program of training in, in, in psychiatry for registrars. Um, and I went and had a talk to her and she was a, she was a very warm and, and uh, inspirational person. And you had the feeling that was a great sense of hope and, and a future for the, for the, for the discipline and for the profession of psychiatry. So, and I'd always, and as I say, I'd been interested in it anyway, but I thought I'd, I'd just take the leap of faith and, 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 um, and, and move into the training program and do that. And even though the working conditions were sort of, you know, much more primitive than say, you know, in the in the mainstream hospital system, it was it was um, it was still a very a very good decision in retrospect. And and I suppose the one thing that struck me at the time was how all my re medical registrar and consultant colleagues tried to talk me out of doing that. They said, "Don't waste your life, you know, in in that area um, on those people," quote unquote. In other words. So the, so the doctors and, 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 the, and, the, and the colleagues at the time were, were incredibly prejudiced against the mentally ill, you know, and that stigma was in the profession itself, right at the heart of the profession. And I talked to some psych trainees a few years ago about that experience, and they, they also reported they had the same experience, you know, even, even these days, you know. So it's something that I, I think your generation of medical students are overcoming that because you've had amazing leadership and interest in mental health <clears throat> through AMSA and other, other groups in recent years. So I think it's, it's changing, but that's been, that was a big thing that struck me at the time. And, and I suppose I, I never expected to be able to make change in mental health in the way that I've had the opportunity to do. But um, that was always my aspiration to actually do something to change the way the mentally ill were treated and, and, uh, and, and, and uh, so they had an equal opportunity to get better alongside people with other medical illnesses of other kinds. Yeah. Mm, I see. Yeah, that's very interesting, Professor McGorry, um, I guess. And you brought up that, I guess, psychiatry has always been a bit of a black sheep amongst a black sheep, yeah. specialties. Yeah. yeah. And I, it's fascinating that I guess, you know, even after all this time, it really hasn't changed so much. I wonder if this is a bit of a too philosophical question, but what do you think? it is about I guess psychiatry or I guess mental illness in general that makes it I guess I guess such 
something that's so difficult to talk about or something that is so stigmatized? Yeah, it's a very good question. I think it probably goes to just, you know, um, if you work with people with mental illness, um, you get stigmatized as well. You know, so that's, that's, mm -hmm. that's sort of, you get affected by the stigma. It's like, a, like it's contagious. You know? um, <clears throat> but also it's, it's, it's a very challenging area of work, you know, because um, a lot of the, a lot of the people are, are, are in distress. Uh, they might be angry. You know, they, they, they might, they might even reject help. You know, people with psychotic illnesses might not even realize that they're becoming unwell and they might reject the help. And then you've got this whole dimension of involuntary treatment, which <clears throat> kind of, kind of makes it very difficult. Mm -hmm. and, and, and you also get criticized as well by a whole bunch of people for practicing, you know, in a necessary sort of way. And, and um, so it's a much more complex area to work. Um, you know, I've often heard patients say, when I had a mental illness, I was in the psych ward and there were no visitors or chocolates or flowers. But when I went into the cancer ward, you know, it was a completely different cultural experience. So, mm. so there's like a poverty, you know, of, of neglect around the around the whole field, which hopefully we're, we're beginning to turn around now. But so I think um, there's been a lot of <clears throat> negative forces, you know, pushing people away from, from from it as a profession, and they haven't been able to see the incredible rewards that you can actually get from it, which which is quite amazing that, that because it's the one area or the main area of medicine where you can actually help heal people through the relationship as well that you have with them, not just your skill sets. And, and, and that probably happens in other parts of medicine too, like with GPs and, and other, other people where you have continuity of care, but, but in psychiatry, it's, it's, it's actually, you are part of the vehicle of, of healing and, 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 uh, and care. So, and treatment. So, and that, that's gone, gone, diluted a bit in recent years because when I trained there was a huge emphasis on psychotherapeutic training and you know mm -hmm. becoming a skilled psychotherapist as well as a, a, a person that's skilled in the use of the medications and other other forms of therapy but so I think that you know that there's so much richness and it is the one area that of, of medicine where you can blend the arts and the sciences in in, in, in one in one thing so if, you, if you've got an artistic bent or if you've got a, a sort of a, a bent for you know, the humanities, you know, as well as the sciences, it, it gives you a, a scope to sort of, um, um, I don't know, balance those different aspects, different aspects intellectually and also, also practically as well. <clears throat> yeah, I think with the stigma that you were talking about before, that was one of the points that we wanted to discuss. Um, and you've talked a bit about how it's changed a little bit over the years. And I guess that has, as you talked about AMSA and I think the work they're doing um, and heaps of different societies at the moment. Have yeah. you noticed any things in particular that have caused this shift um, over the years? And as well as the stigma at the moment, do you have any advice as to what, I guess, us as students could do to help further break that stigma? If you have any thoughts on that. <clears throat> well, I think the things that you, your generation are doing is very important. The leadership that you've shown, a whole series of AMSA presidents have made it their, you know, their top sort of advocacy issue, you know, and, and I think, and they've had a lot of support from the student body too. So, so I think that that's, that's been really helpful. Um, <clears throat> I suppose one of the things that's held it back has been the fact that, that the public mental health system has been so neglected over the last 15 years or so leading to the Royal Commission that the, the, the settings in which clinical care is provided look pretty grim still, you know, and, and, and uh, a bit toxic actually. So, I'm hoping the Royal Commission and the reforms that are happening around that will help with that so that 
we'll be able to place people as students and also as young doctors in in much more dynamic and you know uh, what's the word um, sophisticated sort of clinical settings which which definitely possible i mean we've we've created some of those oases of care like with headspace and norigen i think you know we have got these oases and there are, there are other ones of course apart from ourselves but 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 those, those are very precious so, so people can see what's possible um so that's 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 one thing so you so you have you have much better <clears throat> cultures of care I, I remember um you know the first job i had as an intern was in a diabetic education and stabilization center in newcastle and there was nothing like that anywhere in Australia at the time. And it was amazingly inspirational to work in this place where you had a team of people, you know, um, assessing and stabilising um, first diagnosed diabetics, you know, um, uh, rather than the sort of very basic sort of way diabetics had been treated up until then, it, it brought it to a new level and, and it was it was innovative, it was um, inspiring. And I think if, if you can provide those sort of experiences to students and, and young doctors, then they'll just flock to work in the area. And we we need the talent. If if you're going to develop, you know, a high highly high, um, a high profile and effective sort of um, specialty and system of care, you've got to have talented people. And and we we've had some talented people in mental health, but typically you know fewer than than other specialties. I would say you know. So I remember I was I was a judge for the medical research prize in Victoria, uh, the premier's prize for a number of years, and all the emerging researchers. The really smart ones were all working at the Welter Eliza Hall on the Flory, and hardly any of them were working with us in mental health. So, so they were able to get the cream of the crop in, into these into these areas of medical research. And we need to get the cream of the crop into mental health and into psychiatry. Um, if we're going to really, you know, advance the specialty in a good way. That's a really interesting observation, Prof McGurry. I was just wondering, do you think part of that might be because I guess in the sense that I guess the philosophies of mind that sort of, I guess, underlie how we approach mental health and how we deliver mental health, I guess that seems to be more fragmented or that doesn't seem to be, I guess, sort of one cohesive way in which I guess we try to understand or approach mental illness, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, that, that is a very good point because um, <clears throat> it's, it's the brain and the mind, isn't it? And, and it's also the society, all, all those things are relevant mm. to mental health. Yeah. And that's that, that um, complexity is, is one of the attractive things about it, how, how it all relates together. Um, and probably psychiatry has lurched over the decades be, from being mindless or brainless. And by that, I mean, you know, back in the psychoanalytic era, it was all about the mind and all about the, <clears throat> the psychology, if you like, of, of mental illness. Mm -hmm. And then when, when they realised that wasn't really a feasible option and it probably wasn't that effective in, in, on its own, that, that way of thinking, um, they kind of ditched that and, and went to a purely brain-based way of looking at mental illness. And, and so that, that, was the, that was the mindless uh, approach, whereas the previously had been a brainless approach, but we need both. <laughs> and um, we also need the social dimensions of, of mental health to be uh, respected and understood too. So, so bringing all those things together you know, is a challenge. You know, um, it's 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 um it's only the best people that can really integrate all those uh, those things uh, within their own sort of practice. You know? And um, it's very attractive just to have a you know a single dimension view of things. And and having two biological approach means that means that people can criticize psychiatry for being too um, 
I suppose, neglecting the humanity and the compassion mm. and the social aspects of things. But if you go too much the other way, then you're neglecting a respect for, for the brain, which is the most complex organ in the body and definitely mm. is the vehicle for, for mental illness, whatever the causes happen to be. Mm. That was a very inspiring call to action for um, any of our medical students that might be listening out there. So thank you. Mm. Um, I was wondering, Sathak, should we switch to, I guess, more of a conversation about, I guess, youth mental health in particular? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think, um, like, obviously, you've done so much work within the, the field of youth mental health. Um, and I think it's a, a field or an area that a lot of people might be interested in and pursuing in the future. I was wondering if you could give us an insight into, I guess, your experiences within youth mental health and um, the demographic of patients that you might work with and see. Yeah, sure. Well, one of the things that I mentioned Beverly Raphael before, the reason I got into this area is because she had been <clears throat> um, very preventively orientated in mental health, you know, uh, and, and mm. that was her focus, preventive psychiatry. And, and you know, psychiatry was the opposite of, of, of a preventive approach, really, in the real world, because being so under-resourced, the only patients that ever got treated were people in very late stages of illness and, and, uh, and, and very disabled or very acute. So it was late intervention, not early intervention. But I had the chance <clears throat> to to develop um, a first episode psychosis unit when I first uh, was, when I was when I was finishing my training, and by focusing on on people, young people, their first episode of schizophrenia or, or psychosis, you could see exactly what was possible and how how different their needs were from from people with fifteen admissions, let's say, and 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 um, so you could see that intervening early rather than waiting until they got really sick was 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 obviously there's a lot of potential in, in thinking about that early detection early diagnosis and then sort of making sure that you get people into remission and and, and you aim for full recovery because at that time people were just set, happy to set, settle for you know getting a little bit better and patched up and away you go sort of thing but but we we, we adopted the mentality that you see in cancer treatment where you know, you've got to diagnose it early, so you've got the best chances of getting better. And, and also, when, when, when you get into remission, you, you do everything to get the person into remission. And when you've got them in remission, you keep them in remission. And, and, and they're very simple principles, but being able to apply those, you know, really was a great lesson to see how well they worked, even in these very severe mental illnesses. They work really well. And, and we've got really great evidence about that. So I suppose then I, I managed to, to see that, all the major mental illnesses of adult life start in teenagers or young adults. And, 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 and probably the risk factors are operating in younger children uh, as well. And there are some disorders in younger children like ADHD and autism and so on. But the adult type disorders like depression, psychosis, bipolar, you know, anorexia, substance use disorders, personalities, all of those things become obvious in the teenage and young adult years. <clears throat> and that's very different from physical health where mm. you know, onsets are mostly in the over 50s of you know heart disease and cancer and stuff like that and so we had to we had to focus on young people if we were going to develop early intervention systems of care we, we couldn't wait we couldn't have an adult focused system that's that's dealing with more chronic or prevalent mental illness an incidence-based approach focusing on the the first emerging signs of mental health, that's where the focus had to be. And that meant you had to create systems of care and cultures of care 
that appeal to and engage young people. And we needed young people's help to do that because, you know, we had to help them, they had to help us create the right culture that a young person would feel comfortable in and, and would be able to benefit from. So, so that's been a, a massive sort of learning experience and a, and a kind of a, 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 almost like a building, you know, a, um, project in a way, try to create those models. At the same time, try to research and test treatment strategies, whether they're drug therapies or psychological therapies, and what's the right sequence of those those treatments actually to, to, to get the best results and get people better. So, so youth mental health, 75% of disorders appear by the age of 25. Um, and, and the adult type presentations develop in the transition to adulthood. And also the, the transition to adulthood is much more complex and, and, and uh, what's the word, vulnerable than, than it ever has been in history because, you know, there's less scaffolding around the young people, that the, the kind of financial and social structures are much less restrictive and supportive, you know, so there's more freedom in some ways, but there's a lot more risk. And, and, and um, I think a whole range of factors have changed in the last few decades to make it a much more risk-prone transition, if you can put it that way. So mm -hmm. mental ill health is very common in young people in this transition. Yeah. At least 50% will have periods of poor mental health. So it's the main health issue of young people. So, so and also that from, from the medical student's point of view and, and a future doctor's point of view, it's such a great area to work in because you get to work with young people and, and they're full of energy, they're full of ideas and, and, and they get better. <laughs> That's the other beauty of it. You know? so, <laughs> so why wouldn't you want to work in youth mental health? It's just a, such a huge privilege and a, a joy to work in. Those are very harrowing statistics. Um, and I guess in terms of the term that you use with scaffolding, I think that's such a great term because I think it encompasses so well, I guess, what you need during that complex transition from yeah, adolescence to adulthood. And I can see, I guess, more than ever, especially with the COVID-19 pandemic, that sort of totally. scaffolding breaking down. Totally and I was just wondering if you had any comments on, I guess, the way the pandemic has impacted young people, especially from, you know, the lack of peer support to mm. just the way that um, everything has shifted and is changing so rapidly in this digital era? Well, I think you've already answered the question, actually, mm. um, because that scaffolding was already getting more fragile over recent decades. Yeah. And it, it's really been, you know, undermined further in the pandemic, hasn't it? Like the, the ability yeah. to get support from peers is much more difficult, you know, because of the isolation and, and lockdowns and things like that. And, mm. and, and, um, Universities have been placed under extreme pressure because of the, you know, the policies, government policies and, and, and the effects of universities and lockdowns and um, family members are under a lot more stress and are exhausted as well and, and, and stressed. Uh, so their ability to support their, 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 their um, young, young people and their families is, is reduced. Um, you know, the casualization of the workforce means that young people are... <clears throat> Are sort of more financially insecure and then you've got the yeah. you know ballooning house prices and university fees and yeah. all these other sort of things and then there's climate change everything is making people more insecure young people more insecure and more worried and more more pessimistic about the futures and and and, and um, so all of that is having a like a, a population-wide effect which and, and, and some people are probably a little bit more vulnerable than others and and, and there's inequalities amongst young people too so all of those things are happening and, and it's definitely a much more serious situation than it was before. And we're seeing rises of um, <clears throat> sort of certain types of um, disorders that, that um, are sensitive to this, like eating disorders and, and obsessive compulsive disorders. There's 
been a definite surge of that sort of presentation, if I can put it that way, um, amongst all the other distress. So, yeah, I think, and, and that's what the stats are showing, aren't they, from, from emergency department and, and so on. <clears throat> Just on that point with, like, I guess, increased um, occurrence of people with eating disorders or other mental health issues, do you think the lockdown has, um, obviously, it's contributed, I guess, in a way to, like, lacking support, but has it contributed to people not feeling comfortable and seeking support because I guess with lockdown um, you might have to see a specialist over zoom for example through this yeah. or, or online mechanisms Has that affected the treatment or management in any way um, I think to, to, to be fair to young people they've been really great about seeking help you know that they they, they, they they the problem is that they can't find it you know I mean, the, the headspace I work in on the weekends got 200 young people on the wait list um, you know, and I get phone calls every day from young people and their families who do want help. And there might be some people, as you say, it's definitely not as attractive to, to have the first meeting with, a, with a, a health professional over Zoom. You know, for most people, it's it's more distancing and, and you know, you can't connect quite as well. And um, so I try to see people in person as, as, as best I can. But, um, but nevertheless, um, I, I think that's part of the problem. But the main... The main problem is we can't meet the demand, you know, that that's the problem, you know. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, I guess. Um, obviously, the demand's increased recently and um, that requires a huge, I guess, strain on the healthcare system and being able to manage that and meet that demand. Um, it, I just wanted to hear more, I guess, in terms of supports at the moment. Do you have any advice for people who might um, be struggling during this lockdown with their mental health? What sort of support can they um, find for themselves if they can't access, I guess, management from uh, mental health services? Well, I suppose, you know, one thing is to, to just talk to people that you trust, you know, people that you have got like an intimate relationship that if you're lucky enough to have such people in your life, then that, that's a first port of call. Yeah. But then there's uh, things like e-headspace, you know, that that's like a, a real person at the other end of that line. Um, okay. Uh, kids help, and then there's the emergency lines like Kids Helpline or, or, or Lifeline. Um, I still think it's worth trying to get help via Headspace or via GPs. It, it's, yeah. it's one way, even if there's a wait list for Headspace. A GP, probably the wait list is going to be fairly short. So at least you've talked to someone who might be able to uh, access more help. Um, <clears throat> and then... If it's a more life-threatening situation, the sort of triage lines and 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 um, and, and, and emergency departments are they're really the only option uh, at the moment. So it's, it's, we, we, we're advocating very strongly with government to have an emergency strategy where they redeploy workforces into mental health rather than out of it, like they've done in the past, you know, to meet COVID needs. But so we, so we're in active dialogue with federal and state governments trying to get a an emergency workforce plan, not waiting for the next four years until the pipeline effects sort of kick uh, kick in. But but this is why this sort of discussion today is so important because there is a medium to long term need to to. Uh, increase the scale of the mental health system by probably a factor of three to compare to what it is now, if we're really going to meet everyone's needs. And, and so young doctors, uh, apart from the, the, the medical and, and sort of psychiatric roles they play, um, also the leadership roles, you know, I mean, because doctors are smart, they're ambitious, and they're, they're, they're able to play leadership roles, which is, is probably we're more dependent on, on, on doctors for that than, than perhaps some of the other professions. So, so I just say that, that there's huge opportunities for young leaders, and especially if they're able to blend 
you know, research skills with, with clinical skills. That's what I tried to do in my career. <clears throat> I tried to get it as good as I could be at both sets of skills. And clinically, because you want to be able to be the best clinician you can and to learn all the skills that you need for that. And then the research so you can actually create, you can create knowledge and, and learn and improve things. And, and putting those two things together is very, very potent, you know, um, if you're able to, to get good at both of those things. Um, and also for a credibility point of view, if you're just a researcher that sits on the side and, you know, has ideas and isn't connected to the, the real world, it's, it's, not, it's not as powerful. And, and um, but if you're if you if you're a researcher who also is respected as a clinician, that's an incredibly powerful position to hold in in in, in any any part of medicine actually, but especially in psychiatry. Yeah, and I think um, we were going to touch on that a bit later as well. But um, research is really really important, I guess, to grow both our own exposure <clears throat> to different um, fields, different areas that we're interested in, but also to yeah, as you said, gain that gain that credibility. Um, as medical students or any sort of area, did you have any tips or an advice to, for us to seek research opportunities? Are they available at this stage and how would we go about getting yeah. them? Well, you can all come to Origin, of course, you know, yeah. <laughs> research and, and youth mental health. You're very, yeah. very welcome. We, we, we want the, the young, enthusiastic talent. And, uh, but yeah, look, I think doing the BMED side degree or whatever it's called these days yeah. um, is a good thing to do. If you want to get a taste for it, see if it's for you. Not, it's not for everyone probably. And and then maybe, you know, try to do a PhD, you know, relatively early in your, in your sort of specialty training. Some, you might be able to combine it with, um, with, with psychiatry training. That would be an, another way to do it. Um, um, so, yeah, and, and also have, have an idea about what area uh, you want to be doing research in because it's got to turn you on. It's got to be able to interest you because it's um yeah. research is hard you know to to actually learn the skills and, and and to kind of earn your stripes sort of thing like getting the phd and all that kind of stuff you know yeah. um but it's a lot easier now than it was when i first started we almost had to teach ourselves how to do research you know back in the 80s it was and and um and, and uh, nowadays there's there's definitely infrastructures like origin like brain and mind and Sydney, and you know there are places where you can actually be nurtured within a team and we definitely need the talent we need the new ideas and innovation because <clears throat> that's the other beauty of psychiatry because it's a bit of a greenfield site still there's lots of discoveries to be made there's lots of improvement to be made uh, we need new drugs we need new forms of psychotherapy probably things like virtual reality can help us do much more potent cbt interventions for example so there's lots of ways that you know, innovation and technology can, can, can bring us forward. We, we do need new medications and we need to understand the mechanisms underpinning the more serious forms of mental illness much better. And technology is going to transform it, I think, to some degree too. But we also need to rebuild and rediscover some of those more psychotherapeutic skill sets that have probably, you know, been, um, what's the word, um, neglected over the last 20 years or so. Yeah. Just on the, the, I guess, research opportunities, and obviously Origin is a major source of that. What sort of um, opportunities that does Origin like provide for, I guess, students or anyone generally interested in the fields of mental health or youth mental health? How can they get involved through that? Well, well, Brian O'Donoghue, one of the psychiatrists that that uh, that we had, um, he's gone back to Ireland, unfortunately, but he he actually 
had probably four or five um, BMED science students who all did very significant projects. And they've all published great papers based on them. And some of them have actually been, for them, it's been a stepping stone into a, a research career and, and also a psychiatric career. So that can be quite formative. So we've definitely got opportunities, you know, many opportunities for that. We've also got um, <clears throat> uh, doctoral PhD scholarships for, for people who want to do PhDs or MDs. Um, we, we're going to have more of those. We're going to invest more and more money into that because we realise the next generation is, is, is the important one to invest in. And then there's postdoc, when, when you've got your PhD, until you're actually able to become an independent and funded researcher in your own right, you need a bit of a safety net for a few years until you can actually get enough papers under your belt to sort of um, to actually get make that step. So we're, we're looking at the career structure for especially for blended clinical research careers. That's what we really need, you know, like a whole cohort of those sort of people at Origin. And I, I think obviously in other settings, it would be good to have them as well. <clears throat> yeah, 100%. I think like um, not just myself, but so many people who are interested in that field would love to get involved in some way. And not only to, I guess, provide that assistance, but also get our own exposure into that area and gain more interest in it if that's something we want to pursue in the future yeah, so you've got, um, you've got to see yeah. if, if, if you've got to see if you really if that's what you want to do because you've only exactly, got one life, yeah. right so so yeah you've got to you've got to basically put your toe in the water and see what see what it feels like and and, and look if anyone is interested that's listening to this they're very welcome to get in touch directly with me i, I can give you my email and i'd be yeah. i'd love to hear from anyone that wants to think about this sort of career yeah for sure thank you so much I think like one thing I wanted to touch on a little bit further with what you were mentioning before, if we've got a bit more time, was um, what you were mentioning about prevention and I guess with youth prevention. Um, what does that look like? And I guess what sort of um, techniques do we have to prevent um, further <clears throat> exacerbations of mental health and um, that in the future? Yeah, well, prevention, I mean, Prevention used to be divided up into primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. Yeah, yeah. And then there's more sophisticated things like indicated prevention, or, or, or uh, which is like a like early warning signs of, of the onset of, of illness. You know, like like TIA's stroke, let's say, or, or, or chest pain, yeah. heart attacks. That's that's sort of somewhere in between primary prevention and secondary prevention. But with primary prevention, what you're talking about there is risk factors and, pro and protective factors. So. What are the risk factors for mental illness? Well, apart from sort of genes and, and, and so on and, and biological risk factors, there are things like, you know, childhood trauma or, or abuse, uh, uh, trying to reduce levels of that. I would say also trying to improve attachments that, that, that younger children have with, with, with parents. So you see the kids that have been in foster care and lots of broken attachments, they, 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 that's a massive risk factor for all sorts of mental health problems. And, and they haven't been abused but necessarily, but, but they, they, they've had very sort of interrupted attachments with intimate, you know, with, with parental figures. And, and, and that's very destructive for kids. You know? So those sorts of things could be improved a lot. Um, let me think what else. Um, I suppose disadvantage, inequality, social inequality. We know that mental illness is, is at higher rates when there's, you know, the more unequal society, um, like say the US, you know, it's much worse in the US because there's so much inequality there compared to say countries like Japan or, or, um, or the Scandinavian countries, which are more equal, you know, in, in uh, sort of social and economic terms. And so I think things like that, those are sort of the risk factors. Protective factors, I suppose, 
it's the converse. It's it's having, you know, uh, you know, um, at least one good relationship with an adult when you're growing up. And, and and if it's not your parents, it could be an uncle or it could be, you know, um, another adult, a teacher, perhaps, you know, lots of stories about kids who've been at risk, um, who've been saved by having those, you know, um, protective type relationships yeah. as well. And, and um, so I suppose there's a whole literature on prevention, but and there, there are yeah. many things that we could do that would reduce the incidence of mental illness more. But um, probably the, mo the most powerful thing is the more preventive approach to early diagnosis and recognizing the early signs of problems, and um, yeah. which is probably what I've focused on. That's that's feasible right now, you know. And you don't need to eliminate child poverty or child sexual abuse to to actually do that. It can be done, and it, and it, and it's not a choice either. It's like with heart disease; you don't say. Well, we're not going to have any more coronary care units. We're just going to focus on diet and exercise and healthy lifestyles. You've got to do both yeah. because one one on their own is not going to be the total solution. Yeah, it's a very um, I guess multifaceted approach. And you talk like I guess there are so many social factors or big systemic um, society factors that we can't directly um, like fix in a in an instant. But um, there are lots of quick preventative factors that we can help um, develop within the youth to hopefully um, develop those skills and habits in the future um, to, you know, work on their mental health and be really strong and um, work on those strategies. Did you, like, on that, did you think there's more education that needs to be provided to schools or, or young people in terms of taking care of your own mental health and recognising those signs and seeking help? Or do you think that's we've made good strides in that recently? Well, there's been a lot of... I suppose programs like that, and, and they're they're not not very well standardised. They're all sort of a bit piecemeal, I suppose. You know, mm. um, and they kind of oversell themselves a bit too. They um, they're obviously a key part of it in, in terms of improving the positive mental health of kids. You know, mental health promotion, but it's assumed by by doing that and resilience building, you know, as they call it, um, yeah. that somehow they're going to cure mental illness through that. Well, it just doesn't work that like that. I mean, yeah. becoming more resilient is 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 um, an end in itself, and and you kind of need adversity to develop resilience anyway. So, so you can't yeah. teach it in the absence of, of adversity. Unfortunately, I don't think. Mm, um, yeah. and so I think um, those, those programs have got their place, but then they're not a solution to kind of you know. Um, making sure that when people are struggling, they get support. Yeah. Yeah, no, 100%. Like, um, I know, I, th I think going back and thinking back on when I was in school, whether there was teaching about taking care of your mental health, there wasn't a lot, but it was definitely coming through yeah. and yeah. Um, adding more exposure to that. Yeah. But um, the second part of it was the stigma and seeking support when you do feel like you need that support and um, the stigma that prevents people from seeking ment uh, mental health support, I guess. So, I guess there's two ways to tackle it and there's lots of different ways to approach yeah. it. But um, yeah. yeah, and then one way to tackle the second bit is to make it just normal. Right? So that um, yeah. and I saw something in a Sydney school once, which was, it was very, it was a peer support program. So they, they trained about 30 or 40 high school kids, senior high school kids, and they gave them a, a little yellow ribbon badge to put on their blazer. And they were the people, if you had any problem, you could just go and talk to them. And, and it, even though most of the problems were related to mental health or stress, and it, it could be any problem, like a practical problem, you know, like you, you, you lost your wallet or something. So, so it, it wasn't labelled as mental health. It was just like a support program for any kid to go mm -hmm. to, a bit, like a big brother, big sister type idea. 
but they were trained in, in, in how to listen to mental health problems and, and how to handle distress. And, and then they were like the, the kind of, um, what's the word, um, the tour guides, you know. So, so if, if they were worried about a kid, then they'd, they'd either take him to the school counsellor or they'd take him down the road to the local headspace or they'd, they'd give them some information about helplines, you know. So they, they actually provided practical pathways to the next step. So, so that's something that could be done in every school. It doesn't label the kids and no yeah. one knows what the problem is that you're talking to them about. It, um, so it's confidential in that sense. And, and, and uh, it also normalises things too. Yeah, we actually had a very similar um, program, but we didn't actually get educational training in that. So it was a peer support program, but um, it wasn't necessarily we were trained to provide that support, which I think is quite a different um, thing and when you do have that training to provide support to your peers it's really important um, to be there that's that's a really good point yeah now we have you know programs like mental health first aid and things like that even that has become more accessible yeah yeah well I think that was part of what these kids got trained in actually yeah and mental health first aid which which um, yeah can be good yeah definitely yeah I think um, thank you so much for, for taking the time today I really enjoyed um, hearing from you and I think a lot of people listening in um, can really take a lot away in terms of youth mental health and especially if they're interested in pursuing it there's so many opportunities as we've heard from you but also I think secondly the stigma and I think conversations like this in general help to tackle that stigma in some way but um, obviously it's a really prevailing issue within our society and hopefully we can um, you know as advocates continue to try and break down that stigma in the future so thank you so much for sharing your thoughts yeah thank you both i really really appreciate it and, and um yeah i think i really enjoy it too and it's, it's um it's a great opportunity so thank you thank you for, for your leadership in this space too